This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Art History Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ginny. I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. <laughs> We're two of the Art History Babes here. We're half of the Art History Babes. Uh, this is one of our um, series of the virtual realism artist talks. So um, Zach Clark and I, who couldn't be here today, have um, curated a online exhibition selecting works from artists and we've um, been lucky enough to speak with some of the artists in um, our show and so today we're joined by Deborah Root. Welcome Deborah. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome. Um, and this is a slightly unique virtual realism episode because um, for context for you Deborah and for listeners, you know there are there are four of us, in the Art History Babes collective. And sometimes there'll be all four of us on episodes, other times it's just a couple and we we have side projects and all that. And so virtual realism has been a collaboration between the Art History Babes and Zach Clark through National Monuments Press. Um, but it's largely been me and a little bit of Nat working on this um, and Jen has, you know, we all have like other jobs and things that we're doing. And Jen recently was like, oh, Deborah Root, like, I know her. <laughs> I know her work. I <laughs> I know <it."> you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that just seemed way too cool and serendipitous to not bring Jen on to talk about your work and to talk about um, research interests that the two of you share. So this episode will be a little bit of a hybrid of talking about your work that's in virtual realism, but also um, the really cool and fascinating topic of uh, cannibalism in art history. So, um, but we'll kind of start with Deborah, like if you, you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and um, talking a bit about your background and then in particular the piece that you submitted um, to virtual realism. Right. Well, I live in Canada now in a quaint hamlet in Ontario, but I grew up in Seattle in a suburb. And um, I, I have been making work dealing with some of that stuff because it really was the belly of the beast in a way. It was the heart of the American dream for, for many. 
it's what everyone was supposed to want. But those of us growing up there often had a hard time. We were alienated for a whole range of reasons. It seemed like a dead zone. And, um, you know, even now I look at work like David Hockney's work and mm-hmm. I just see a dead zone. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to see if I could paint it and paint the alienation that I experienced and that a lot of my friends experienced. And so the question is how to do it. So I tried to play a bit with composition and with fragmentation. I didn't want to make the people grotesque like George Gross did when he was doing like the bourgeoisie or whatever in Weimar. But I wanted to show how something didn't work, even though it in theory looked nice. So um, this has been what I've been working on. I've been doing other work with with my friends, images of my friends um, in social situations. And also recently I've started looking at tourism. Um, yeah. What do people want when they go to the holiday paradises? So um, I've looked at a lot of work in my life, but I never made work. Um, I'd been living in downtown Toronto. Most of my friends were artists, which probably should have been my first clue. Um, But then when I moved out here, I had space and I could start playing with these things without fear and just learning technique and figuring out what it was I wanted to say, what what was important about it um, to me, and then just trying to learn how to do it and YouTube, you know, like how do you glaze, this sort of thing. So the the image I have in virtual realism is the Nordstrom box. So Nordstrom being a store and it's the the Christmas present. And, you know, people are not really relating to each other and they're not even quite relating to the gift. They're just there in their windowless monads, you know, completely separate, trying to deal with all of this. And I wanted to use bright colors because of the kind of, uh, surface quality of those interiors. You know, in real life, the interiors might have been more subtle, but still there was such a focus on what stuff looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to do it fairly large and all of that stuff. So when I saw the call for virtual realism, I was really interested because um, thinking about Stalinist art and for my generation, um, I looked at a lot of Maoist art from the Cultural Revolution sure. when I was in university. Yeah. And I remember one in particular showed like the Revolutionary Guard opening the door on the bourgeois and the guy was smoking and he had books and he had like liquor and that sort of thing. And he was horrified and guilty. And, and just thinking about how the, these images were very graphic. Yeah. So they were, it was poster art. So I wanted to kind of bring that in a little bit too. So totally. I'm from with that. Yeah, yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. And and your the Nordstrom box, like that kind of flat graphic expanse of color and something that's very vibrant, where it's it, and that's what really I agree connects to um, you know like socialist realism in the sense of images that are are very clear to read, right? Because, you know, the whole, the whole point is to like, here, here's what you're supposed to feel in this environment. Here's the message that's coming through. But then your work is fragmented, and it's fragmented in especially this piece in, in a very subtle way, like you don't notice it at first, like you're looking and you're like, Oh, I see what's happening. People sitting around, you know, a coffee table, and it's the holidays, and someone's opening a gift. And then you're like, Oh, there's like, little fragmentation here. Can you speak a little bit more about your use of fragmenting like that and what, 
what kind of your your thought process is behind that? Well, with that that piece, that's really the first one I was playing with. With that, mm-hmm. I want so I wanted to take it and just move it around a little bit, exactly so you wouldn't notice it right away, because people's experiences were fragmented. In my more recent work, I do it way more obviously and play mm-hmm. with sizes of people and all. And in the more recent work, the idea is that you know, with memory, it's inevitably in fragments. There are these little bits and these pieces, and we see it in different ways. Yeah. In the Nordstrom box, I wasn't as aware of that. It was more um, trying to amplify the disconnection between the characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, in a way, I feel like I could have gone farther with that mm-hmm. in that piece. But you know, it's, it's what I was doing then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And so what you're working on currently in talking about doing the fragmentation more and like really emphasizing that, um, are you still thinking of a lot of these similar themes as you were thinking of with the Nordstrom box about like the disconnection and the kind of alienation between people? Definitely. Yeah. So I have one that's of a group of us um, in somebody's cottage or whatever, and nobody is looking at each other. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, the photos we take of each other. It's always the way nobody connected. No one really looked at each other. Yeah. And with the one I'm working on now with tourism, um, I had a kind of version of a Caribbean life on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always look at the tourists and the way they'd walk, the way they moved through space as if they weren't there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the experience is by definition fragmented because they fly in, they have their great colonial experience where they're waited on by darker skinned people yeah. and then they leave. Mm-hmm. And so how to represent that. So with my work, I really go from the ideas to how to, how to make it visual. You know, I used to do more writing and sure. then you say it and you have to polish it up and all of that, but it's more interesting with visual art because you have to show it in a yes. way. Yeah. That's it's, I'm always very impressed by that, especially, you know, cause from, from our, our background, um, as as being art historians, you know, all of us have made art and, you know, taken art classes. I don't think any of us would necessarily consider ourselves artists outright or visual artists outright. Um, but that, you know, these themes you're talking about, because what I'm thinking about, too, I'm talking about them like, oh, what have you what have you read? <laughs> you know, like what conceptual theoretical works have you read to kind of um, get these ideas moving more too. Um, So I think about that, but then I agree that these concepts that we see and that we notice like of people traveling, of people going to places um, and just kind of existing there, but not in any real kind of meaningful way or that they're actually present. Um, and that sort of fragmented reality and of people like being in a space, shared space, but all being disconnected from one another and, and how that would be difficult to convey visually um, in a way that people can can break that down. And, and it does require some like discussion about it and and that's what I think is so valuable um in visual art in general and like the conversations that art historians have where we're looking at um these works 
that on the surface were like, yeah, like I was saying earlier, you know, people sitting in a living room, but there's all these ideas and there's all these emotions um, that are under that surface to kind of talk about um, and unpack. And I think the tourism theme is really interesting as well. And especially in, you know, like the post-colonial area where we're, you know, talking a lot more about like post-colonial theory and, and ideas of people traveling to foreign places and, you know, being waited on by the people that are native to those places that have been colonized by um, European and Western countries. That's really very interesting. I'll have to see what the latest work is on that. That's really, that's very I can cool. say, I have, I have no art history background. I never mm-hmm. studied it. Um, I've kind of fell into it when I started working on French Orientalism and an anthropology mm-hmm. And of course, that was considered very problematic by the department because I'm talking about like Europeans and how they represented difference, not about whoever the the normal subjects of anthropology. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I, I sometimes wonder if I'd really studied art history uh, if things would be different because it may be it may be uh, it may have changed quite a bit. But I feel art history is an incredibly conservative discipline, in part because of the background and connoisseurship and all of that. Sure. And then you know you look at these weird images. So like French Orientalism, for example, yeah, they're weird. problematic. <laughs> and all you're reading about is brushstroke. But like, hold it, yeah. what are, what are these pictures about? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know. no, I I agree, and I I mean I think we were lucky at at Davis um, because there were more professors there who I think were pushing against that really conservative um, established kind of culture of art history as, as far as that goes. Jen, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like art history is getting a a little less conservative? (laughs) We've been out of the direct field for a while, albeit, but. <laughs> Can't hear you. Jen, you're muted. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true, um, at least in my experience. You know, I'm currently teaching at a city college um, and my big class, my baby, is my Arts of the Americas class that I have been teaching there now for three years going on four years and the um, just the battle that I have to endure to uh, push my class because the only class that they want to offer at least at this like city college level is the survey intro to art class and it's an art history class but it's intro to art which is like extremely vague and it's literally um, half the class is spent teaching basic concepts like what is line and Mm -hmm. then then um i get like a few weeks in the semester where i have to cram the typical survey um of art history it's western art history there's maybe two weeks where i get to focus on i cram all of the other you know, arts of the Americas, arts of Africa, arts of uh, Asia, it all of it gets crammed into its own mini unit within the survey unit. And that's just the way that they want 
to teach and I've gotten to teach my arts of the Americas class one time. It was very popular. They just don't offer it because they say, well, like, well, not enough people want to take it. I've had a lot of students be like, I really want to take that class. And so I, I don't know. I think that when you deviate from a standard like survey, Western centric um, view of something like art history, uh, you don't make a lot of friends. You're not really popular as far as, um, you know, adjunct teaching goes, which is what I'm doing there. Um, and you have to fight for your class. And so that to me speaks of a conservative yeah. attitude. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, completely. For sure. And it's interesting too, because I remember when I was applying for grad school, um, a family friend of mine who's an anthropologist um, was helping me because like talk about, you know, the application process because no one in like my family or immediate sphere had, had done um, like a master's degree or anything like that. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, So he was talking to me about the application process and he was like, yeah, you know, um, I feel like art historians have a reputation of being sort of surface level in certain ways or or very um, kind of stuck in talking like you. It's important to talk about the brush strokes and really like convey a visual image through your writing that is important. But I think they get there's this reputation around art historians that, that it's not really getting all that deep or it's just kind of recycling um, ideas from more like established art historians from like, you know, the 19th century and even older. Um, so I think, you know, there are some ways that, that that envelope is getting pushed more. Um, and I think what was great for us was doing a lot of interdisciplinary work where we weren't just reading and working with other art historians. We were reading things from anthropologists and theologists and, um, so I think that was very valuable in making it a, a more kind of well-rounded <laughs> background. Totally. And I think that our program in particular, we got lucky because when we started our master's program, we got this new shiny professor who was, um, she is a post-colonial a scholar from Iran and we really had a lot of opportunity to discuss um, these concepts of Orientalism and post-colonialism, which I feel were just like things that we got to dip our toe in when we were doing an undergraduate uh, bachelor's degree. But that's not, <laughs> it was, it was like a class, you know, one class out of the whole quarter that we would be like, well, and here's Edward Said and what's he doing? Hmm. Yeah, like then- I had to learn it in the street. I mean, Said changed my life. Absolutely. I, suddenly it's like, well, will yeah. this work with images too? But they never taught it. So mm-hmm. your Thank friend you. tells you and then you go read it on the slide. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find it really fascinating that you are talking, uh, you're dealing with these uh, concepts, these themes of tourism in your latest work, because I'm thinking about the, um, what are they called? The nomadic workers, the uh, the tech 
nomads who uh, during the pandemic have gone to I don't know Costa Rica mm-hmm. and or Mexico mm-hmm. um, or you know any Thailand and and they're just doing this this kind of like nomadic work nomadic you know but they get to live in some beautiful place and be um, waited on by brown people and uh, they get to have this like lavish sort of idea of their lives and like I'm a tech nomad. Um, I'm thinking about that lately just because I've been distance teaching, but I also have another job. So like, I don't get to be a tech nomad. (laughs) I have to go to work. (laughs) Well, some places in the Caribbean, they want, they actually are trying to get people to come for three month stints to work virtually, but live there. I mean, it's it's very weird. Like these sets of fantasies. I think the names of hotels are telling. Like, why on earth would anyone want to stay in a hotel hotel called El Conquistador or in the Caribbean, the plantation? I mean, it oh, just good. What is the fantasy? Well, we know what the fantasy is, but right. it's still under the surface. Yes. And when yeah. I was in Antigua, they have this shiny new cultural center for tourists that talk about how great Antigua is and how we have the sun here so we can have beaches and have visitors. And the whole sugar economy, a veil was drawn over. Mm. And then you go into the, the city, the town, and there's a little local museum. And it's a very different story. And all the exhibits are about resistance to slavery and who was involved in naming them and, and those stories. Um, so sure. it's, it's, but of course the tourists don't want to hear that because no. they'll get depressed or feel guilty or something. Right. Um, so this whole history is elided um, in these, these things. Same in Mexico, you know, like what, 12 million gringos have bought property in Mexico, some incredible number, you know, and they live there. And when I was, um, Living um, a bit north of Zawantanejo, there was an area where there were some Americans living there, and their contribution to the local community was to teach English. Mm. For what? So people can work in hotels? I mean, it just exactly. Seemed- yeah. 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 Um, that's so, it's just, yeah, it's really, I think that uh, the nature of uh, the the privilege of those who got to do the distance work and become these nomadic sort of uh, uh, techie people, uh, it just really, I think, brought all of that stuff to the surface, the, mm-hmm. the inequality, the, but also the desire um, from these other countries, these more um, impoverished nations that are dependent on tourism and yeah. want it. So they're like, well, please come, you know, like, yeah. yes, you can come play out your fantasy so that we can have a job. It's very yeah. complicated. It makes me mad. It is. <laughs> it it makes is. me mad too. I, I just wrote an article about it in for um, a book by the Mexican multimedia artist Loriana Toledo. And her work is really interesting. She grew up in Oaxaca and she kind of deals with the fantasy of Oaxaca and Tehuantepec within Mexico, but also notions of environmental issues and what's really happening there in the tourism. So I wrote a piece. I think it's in, I think, I don't know if it'll be out in English. She 
they had it translated. But mm-hmm. it made me think a lot about Mexico because I, you know, I'd been there and um but the the kind of large scale tourist thing, like in Yucatan, they they you'll like this, Jen, they have like these fantasies of Aztecs and Mayans for the tourists where they can sort of go experience some of that. Mm, yes. So local people are hired to kind of play these particular kinds of roles mm-hmm. that are scary because they're Aztecs, you know, this kind of thing. And, and it's just so bizarre because it's these same old tropes recycled from like the 16th century but that's what people want. And they feel like they're having this touch of authenticity. And now that particular place is run by, you know, Mexican big money. It's not, it's not us big money, but like, what's the difference really? Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's really fascinating. I want to read what you wrote about this artist who I've not um, heard of uh, Loriana Toledo. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that. If it's in Spanish, that's fine. I can, I'll read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so yeah, that's I would, fascinating. I'm very interested in uh, all of your work, Deborah. And you know what? I did not know that you were a visual artist. Um, so <laughs> I didn't know. And I, it was really funny because I have, just my alerts on my phone and I saw an email from the art history babes Gmail account. And I was like, Deborah root. Is that Deborah root? No, it can't be the same one. And I looked it up and I was like, I think this is, I think this is Deborah root. And um, I was so excited to see that because this book, your book, if you'll notice, it looks like crap because I've read it so many times I carry it around like my little tome because I <laughs> um I have this is a a subject that's really near to my heart I don't know how much you want to talk about your book and how much you want to focus on your work but I think we can do both so um this book it's funny because I was in my master's I I got on this topic of cannibal depictions of cannibal characters in these um, early, early uh, 16th century Dutch um, like travel maps. They were like maps, but they were also these works of visual art that imagined um, the new world. So like the first sort of ideas of how it looked and seeing that most of these works almost invariably featured um, some scene of cannibalism. So um, Theodore de Bry in particular has a engraving from the 16th century that is depicting, um, oh, I forget who it is now. It's um, some great explorer is touching ground onto America. He, he comes into contact with America personified as the nude uh, woman, vaguely uh, supposed to be Indian with the headdress, but a very European body. But then you see in the back, there's this little tiny scene. They're having a little cannibal barbecue (laughs) with a little leg on like a spit roast. And it was like, 
that's so bizarre. And I really got introduced to this work from the artist Enrique Chagoya, um, who I wrote my master's thesis on and the notion of re-cannibalizing the the cannibals who are really the Europeans who came to this world and consumed. So I got to my second draft of my thesis. And then one day I found your book and I panicked because I was like, Oh no, someone already did this. And, um, but then I, I loved it, you know, and, and I found it too late. My thesis was basically almost done. And then I found your book and I was like reading it and thought, Oh damn, she said this so much better than I did. Um, and I had a little bit of a crisis about it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But now, um, you know, I wanted to just talk about this concept of cultural cannibalism and just kind of pick your brain a little bit about just how, you know, how did this come up? How are you introduced to this topic or when did the idea manifest? That's a good question. I don't even know. I've always been completely into the Aztecs from Mm -hmm. since I was like in fifth grade and alienated my friends um, talking about it. Um, And I think that, um, you know, I read the same stuff that I'm sure you read about the early conquest period and how they had to call people cannibals to legally conquer them uh, because it went against nature supposedly. And then just thinking about the, the um, ways in which a notion of difference had to be produced in order to justify this this sort of thing. And I had always been thinking of it in terms of precedence. So when Europe was um, not very powerful, um, it developed these legal codes about how do you deal with infidels, with people who are different. Mm-hmm. But they weren't really in a position to do anything about it. And the legal codes were, were um, put together in relation to the Mongols and then later the Muslims. So they already had these precedents of what difference is and do infidels have dominium over their territory, et cetera, et cetera. And then when they came to the Americas, they just applied it outright. So it seemed clear to me that um, that this was being applied to Mexico. Um, and then I read a book, um, oh God, The Almanac of the Dead by Leslie Marmon Silco. 
She's Laguna Pueblo from Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing book. And one of the lines in it was, she said her people fled Mexico. They fled the blood, blood drinkers of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Cortez and Montezuma met, they, re- they recognized each other. So I began to think of, of cannibalism as a metaphor for the state. It doesn't matter who it is. It was the Europeans, but it was also the Mexica, the Aztecs before then. And, you know, they had to conquer everybody in the Valley of Mexico and everyone thought they were psychos um, when they were there. And and so the way this plays out and then the way it gets represented. So I I just kind of let it riff. When I wrote Cannibal Culture, I didn't want to write an academic book. I've never really been very academic. I just wanted to write my views of what I thought about this and that. And it all kept linking up with these ideas. So um, given that cannibalism is kind of the worst thing in the world, supposedly, um, the other has to be designated as being cannibals. Also, they were designated as being sodomites. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another justification for conquest. Sure. Um, they were too clean. That was also an issue here in Canada with the British were distressed that the um, local people took baths and so forth. So mm-hmm. therefore they're paying, mm-hmm. you know, so there are all of these things. And I, so I was interested in the content of that. And I also think the Aztecs are the Europeans' worst nightmare. I mean, the, to me, the Aztecs, uh, human sacrifice, all of that stuff um, is, they don't do anything different in some ways than anyone else. And Montaigne pointed that out in the 16th century, in his essay, Cannibals and and Coaches, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you barbecue people at the stake because they're Protestants in France, or if you do it on a pyramid, well, what's the difference? It's about the state. It's about the state um, deploying this violence against bodies to aggrandize itself. And so the Europeans always had to say, oh, the Aztecs are completely different. They're, they're the other of others because of what they do, but, but they're not. You know, it just looks different because like the art was different because they wore quetzal feathers or whatever. So I just wanted to play that out and to show how that worked in a lot of contexts. So like in cannibal culture, I also talk about popular culture and these things like Madame Butterfly, these kinds of things, um, both in like European high culture, like opera, but also in film where, so why is the Asian woman, why does she have to die to make everybody happy? That's human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of consumption. And I guess the last thing I was interested in is how we know that, um, you know, when people conquer others, they take gold, sometimes they take labor, they take all of this stuff, but they also take images. And sometimes they, they take it and bring it into their own culture um, like we saw in versions of Orientalism. But I think they also just take it and use it to justify whatever their agenda is. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, um, I just, you know, I, this concept of cannibalism, taking that ultimate taboo and reappropriating it um, re-cannibalizing it as Shigoya puts it, you know, yeah. Shigoya's, 
uses the visual image of the cannibal in his works, like literally cannibalizing um, like Picasso, a little cubist Picasso is running away from his cannibals. Um, his, um, his, characters take on this active role in his paintings that are um just so fun like they're fun to look at but then on a wider sense you know he also includes a lot of images of like mickey mouse and mickey mouse becomes the symbol of american corporate culture so showing like a cannibal uh eating mickey mouse there's that famous uh, codex that he uh, repaints and he shows the god of death on top of a pyramid with a little Mickey Mouse that's tied up with like chiles like on the plate and he's putting salt on him. And um, these works were so just silly, but also so powerful and interesting to like take apart. And and I feel like um, it was really fun to talk about cannibalism in an academic setting because I felt like there were a couple of people in our small art history program that were like, what is she doing? She's talking <laughs> about cannibals? Is she talking about cannibals? And and it was um, just probably the most fun topic. And I think we have a lot in common because I also, I grew up, I'm Mexican. My parents are from Mexico. They came here, had me, I was born here, but I had a, I have my dad who he just wanted me to be his little protege. And so when other kids were reading like Berenstein bears, I was getting the big art books from the library with all the codices in them and seeing these images of uh, bodies being cut open and the heart being taken out. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I wrote a book report in the sixth grade on one of these books and got sent to the um, ch- the school psychologist um, <laughs> because they I can relate. <laughs> yeah, just want like, you know, what's going on at home? Why are you looking at these books? <laughs> um, so it's um, I just think it's such a fascinating topic. And I'm wondering how do you still engage with this theme today? Does that has that stayed with you since you wrote this book? It does. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. When I first started making work, I made um, altarpieces. And I bought all these jewels from like a skating supply company and put them on them. And then I do these paintings and gouache and resin them. And a lot of them were like, family things like me, my mother, except as Tetzcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl are their Shipe Totec hands and stuff like it's in my brain. It's been in my brain for so long, but it's tricky because I'm not Mexican. So I have to um, be extremely mindful in how I do it. Sure. Um, and I may, I may try to push it a little more with some of the conceptual stuff. Like, you know, I, I the, the thing of heart sacrifice and human sacrifice continues to really interest me. Um, I, I haven't been reading in the field as much. Um, I'm really not sure what's out there. And because I'm not institutionally affiliated, I don't have access to journal articles. It's all, you have to pay. Which, oh, you know, yeah. Really bad. But, um, yeah. you know. So sometimes I see titles that look interesting. Um, But on the other hand, it's all the same material, um, you know, the same primary texts. And I, 
it's it's weird because like I have theory. I did social and political thought. I was a Delizium. And some of these um, fields are very specialized and they don't quite have theory. So for instance, I was very interested in the Mishtek codices, um, mostly because of Lady Six Monkey, who was um, had power and exhibited it. And I wanted to, I was interested in how that happened. But if you look at the literature um, from people in the field, they don't have, they don't really have social and political theory or gender theory. So it would be very possible to write on it and do a reading that might be interesting. Um, but it's still kind of specialized. And I don't know how much I feel like going back into that kind of work. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll write articles on my friends on, on art, mm-hmm. on people's bodies of work, and it'll come into that. Mm-hmm. But the, the real specialization, I think um, what you what you all are doing is so good because you're carving this space for public intellectuals, which it's few and far between. Like, I think maybe there used to be more like in the past, but I, you know, I don't even know where you'd publish stuff that wasn't like some super narrow academic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Almost like fiction. And um, yeah. this is, this is the, what I choke at is you can do the work, but then where do you, what do you do with it? Right, right. And and we've talked a lot about, too, how, especially, you know, with our master's theses, where we put so much time and energy into researching and crafting and writing and polishing those. Um, and we're all proud of them and thought they had, we all felt like they had really good arguments and, and thoughts for consideration. But then it's like, those have been read by you know, maybe like six people. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how we have this platform and we're so grateful to have this platform and to connect with people like you and and really talk about these um, you know, kind of like intellectual ideas, but talking about them in a way that's that's very accessible and it's not it doesn't have to necessarily be crafted like some um, you know, really well structured peer-reviewed journal article (laughs) it can it can be a conversation um and that 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 truly reaches more people and I do think there is very much um an energy now of people wanting and searching for that um intellectual curiosity and activity and outlets that are not in the traditional academic sphere which is very um, exclusive in and many ways. Yeah, I think more and more. And then they're also, sorry, they're, they're also the kind of the politics of the day. Mm. Like I, I would really love to do more sustained work on the historical and political and visual issues and tensions between El Norte and Mexico, you know, mm. um, and how those play out and how those fall into or are get usurped and used for a range of agendas like the right wing, you know, and right. and what they're actually drawing on for that. Right. Right. I mean, I believe that there's so much there to be said. And I, I, I wanted to just sort of emphasize what, what you were saying about like our, this space 
that we have uh, to discuss just any number of things that we want to, you know, um, what we discovered upon finishing our programs was that we, um, a lot of us really couldn't find a space for ourselves in the quote unquote academia. You know, the closest that I have gotten is I get to adjunct my little class at my little city college. And so for us, having this space to really engage with these topics that are meaningful to us and that we're passionate about has been, I think, I mean, it's been good for my mental health. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate the kind words about about the podcast because we, yeah, we are um, just really hoping to remain engaged with a, a very yeah exclusionary field, a field where you are just sort of at the whim of whatever publisher wants to give you some money or what institution might, you know, dangle a tenure track job at you. So this has been a very important project for us. That's good. I feel there's so few jobs. And even if you get one, I, w- I had been teaching in an art college in downtown Toronto, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the students were very diverse. It was completely anarchic. I could do whatever I wanted, which I did. And then it changed. Awesome. And they started creating a weird hierarchy. So yeah. in a fit of peak, they gave me a pay cut. And so I got pissed off and I quit. And I took like the tenure track job and I was hired as a Mesoamericanist. And so I could like do my thing and do my class and listen to the students gasp at like the images of sacrifice, but it was insane. There was no time to do anything. The whole peer reviewed thing was so weird because you couldn't take oral oral histories or anything into account. And um, you know, all the stuff that you were supposed to do. And um, I I quit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I think that that was the right call because you're making some just amazing work that, I mean, I'm looking at all of your whole website right now. I'm just pouring through it as we're talking and I'm just delighted with this work. Um, Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think we often, what's so cool about um, this, this podcast and, and what we've experienced over the last God, um, like five plus years that we've been doing it, um, is that we connect with all kinds of different people who have, you know, we have like our initial intersecting interests, visual art, um, but we also connect a lot with with fellow people who have who have done like the more traditional kind of academic track and and found it to be too limiting um for a variety of reasons and you know i think what what bothered me the most um beyond like the hierarchical bureaucratic stuff cuz that is, that sucks as well um but was this idea that like the further along you get the more honed in and the more narrow your focus has to be, you know, so like it, it can, an idea can start about like a city or a time period. And then it's like, okay, narrow in on an artist, then narrow in on a one particular work. And, and I just kind of felt like this narrowing lens. And I feel that um, once you can kind of 
break out of that and decide to like do something else. That's when it's just like, there's so many avenues to explore and with people really emphasizing um, more like online platforms for learning and discussion and discourse. Like, I think that's amazing. I think that's one of the coolest things <laughs> to come from the internet and podcasts in particular. I mean, people have podcasts for all kinds of things, but um, you want to like learn about something like I was like, I want to know more about the Ottoman empire. There's a podcast about that. And it's like people who research it and talk about it. And it's, it's that kind of wide reaching discourse that's accessible to anyone with the interest to look for it. Um, I think has been a really wonderful shift um, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. <laughs> and even learning how to do stuff, as I said, you know, I work in oil and I, I do very traditional techniques mm-hmm. um, and I learned online. Yeah. I, oh, I, love I it. That's excellent. So amazing. So cool. And you know, this stuff, this stuff you learn from like the pictures that they paint are not necessarily things. No, I don't, I'm not interested in like a rose with a drop of dew on it. Yeah. But in terms sure. of how you, how you get that sense of transparency. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's, yeah, that's amazing. How long have you been painting for? Three years. Wow. Oh, wow. But That's as I said, really I've looked incredible. at a lot of work and, and um, you know, a good friend of mine who's a, who's an artist, she does installation. Well, well most of the people I know are video installation people, mm-hmm. um, but this friend also does painting um, and she deals with political things like partition. She's South Asian. Her mm-hmm. name's Rita Dalawal. And um, she would always say the medium doesn't matter it's the ideas behind it. You've got to really hone the ideas and then you'll figure out how to do it. They don't teach you in art school. Um, so you just have to make a lot of mistakes and do it. Yeah. And I think, I think having her say that repeatedly made it easy for me to try. And the more you try, the better you get, you know, like all these people I know who want to do work, but they don't because they're intimidated by the fact that it's crap in the beginning. Of yeah. course, it is. remember when you were writing a thesis, think of the first draft, you know, yeah. the, the, it's not like the final Derrida essay, you know? Oh my gosh. So, so, so just so do it. Had to be drank just to put down the words. Cause otherwise I was like, this is terrible. I can't do this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we all can get, um, stuck in terms of what we think in our minds it should be whether it's um an article or a painting or even just like a small I get that I get it with writing a bit but I'm more comfortable there so I I know like the feeling and to kind of try and push past it but I especially over the last year and a half with all the pandemic I've been making way more art than I ever have before and um what I've tried to do is to really push past that feeling of like having something in my mind. And then when it doesn't like look like that, or it's not matching up with how I think it should like stopping and just being like, Oh, I'm bad. And instead just like really um, enjoying the process of creating and making and just doing it for yourself. And that, that alone is valuable and using that part of your brain and just kind of, um, trying to overpass the fears of like, oh, well, no, I can only do this if I 
if it's going to look like this or like I have all these friends who are amazing artists and like they're artists like I shouldn't make any work and we've all talked about that and especially like us being art historians like art historians are often quick to be like I'm an art historian I'm not I'm not an artist you know but it's like the anyone can be an artist and I think everyone should (laughs) everyone should just like sit down and like draw something paint something like especially when you have like ideas um and concepts to to just see how those manifest in like a visual way and get them out of just your head um so yeah it's all I think we have to think of the politics of art production Mm -hmm. you know I'm sure it's different now I hope but like my mother was 17 years old when she went to University of Washington in Mm -hmm. finance she wanted to be an artist she was like a nice girl and it was all the boys of abstract expressionism and they ran her out of there. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. It's yeah. no good. And so as I was growing up, she'd kind of paint sort of, it was very tentative. She never finished anything. Mm-hmm. Then much later in life, she just decided to do it anyway. And, and it worked yeah. for her, but the, the kind of stunting and the way she took it on and felt that it was because she was bad mm-hmm. um, because she didn't have feminism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's huge. And I, I think that has probably happened for many people um, and many women and women identifying artists who have just felt like particularly um, more boxed into like, Oh, you know, good art looks like this. And if you can't do that, you know, like, and, and that's whole attitude too of like doing work somewhat timidly or tentatively, um, I think often gets associated with women. It's like, oh, you know, like a little unsure and a little that. And it's like, you know, um, I think it's getting better now in terms of like, just fucking make something, you know, <laughs> just like, what, like what, however you want it to look, just like do it and do it, you know, without, um, worrying about how it's going to be received and and how you're going to be compared to people. But um, I think, I do think it is getting better in that way, hopefully, but um, there's all progress to be made on all fronts. (laughs) Jen, do you make work? I do, but it's very, it's the same thing that we're just talking about where I'll start something and I'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm really feeling it this time. And then I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like this. And then I never finish anything. That's the, the, the thing. And I don't think that I have finished a work of art since I was in college and I took an art class that I had to finish because it was for a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, where I'm at right now with my career and with um, what I want out of my, out of my future. I'm just turned 32 and I'm working at a, a turn, yes. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm working a, a full-time job at a place that has nothing to do with anything that I care about um, just to pay the bills. And I'm, you know, this is, the podcast is what I love. The the teaching, while mind-numbing, um, <laughs> I do love it more than at least some of the other things. But I was really thinking a few days ago, like, God, I just want to quit my job and make art. I just want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I might. <laughs> so I yeah. think that um, I'm very inspired by by people who have this more traditional 
route and then decide like I'm gonna make art and then they do it and it's really amazing I mean and I think that um what you're what you're saying about your mom and then how you've sort of been doing this self-taught process with your work I mean I think that's so inspiring and and it's amazing I mean I'm I'm very interested in your work I'm also I just saw the Judy Chicago uh, retrospective at the de young museum in san francisco mm-hmm. and a couple of your pieces here give me a little bit of chicago i i'm not really? sure i don't know her work except the dinner party that everybody knows <laughs> sure i mean she's making some very interesting paintings she did a whole series on death and she um in this room and they're on a small scale so like the the retablo scale type paintings that are like traditional sort of a Mexican format where it's usually a personal story and she's using it to chronicle this idea of, of death. What's her death going to look like? Um, the death of her mother. Mm. And um, there's just something about the way she uses color and line that um, it just, I saw your work and I was just reminded. Um, so give it a, a little oh, have a look. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go see that show. I'm a bit afraid to deal with death. And one of the paintings, the Every Dog Has Its Day, I'm dealing with aging a bit. But it's tentative. Mm. It's like, oh, don't give too much away, you know. (laughs) But, but, you know, friends of mine are starting to get sick. It's weird. And Mm -hmm. it's the age thing is weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just um, I made a consultation with a laser um, like face things. I was like, do you think you can? maybe like get rid of some of these lines and then they were like it's two thousand dollars and i said okay forget it (laughs) um so aging is it's weird it's weird but um i'm i think that it's it's a huge huge theme so yeah and it's a theme that seems difficult to work out in artwork but very worthwhile i would think um yeah, and you know, I I my dad is 66, 67 and um he's had a few friends who have gotten very ill and, and a couple who have passed away and he's talked a lot about um how strange it is to like be in that part of his life. He's like, you know, conceptually you know that you'll get there, but it's another to to experience it and I would imagine that would create a big um, shift potentially in your art. But it's not, it's not talked about. And yeah. in my case, I have four parrots. Cool. So oh, I love them. Time, you know, so thinking about that, about you have to make, you have to like plan and do all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, Deb, as one bird lady to another. You know, more things that draw the When I looked at your thing, I thought, I'm interested in everything she's interested in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Turning my house into a birdhouse. Got a bunch of birdhouse. Two African grays, two kaiks. Oh my goodness. What sweet babies. Beautiful. (laughs) Deborah, this has been such a pleasure talking to you and you know, about all, all kinds of themes and in your work that's in virtual realism is stunning. And it has so many interesting concepts. And um, Zach and I really enjoyed 
learning more about it and including it in the show and and all of that process. Um, And, you know, what we do for all these episodes is in the show notes. So when people just kind of scroll to the bottom of the um, podcast as it's playing, we have links um, to websites and everything. But we also ask um, if you would like to share like your website and where people um, can find you um, that would like to see more of your artwork and learn more about you, um, you can go ahead and and let them know um, verbally, and then we'll link it at the bottom as well. Okay, yeah, please share the website. And I must say, I wanted to say that I feel that the curation of virtual realism is wonderful. It's a really interesting show. And the way it's come together and the artists you picked and you know, there everybody's different, but everybody is kind of working it. I know it, it's it's come together really wonderfully, and and that's one of my my absolute favorite things about um, curation is, and, and especially like when you have a theme that's you know it, it's somewhat specific, but we also tried to make it open ended to just see what came in, and then bringing bringing things together and it weaves this whole new kind of story where it's all very different artists working in a lot of different mediums and working through a lot of different ideas. But like you said, there still is this, this kind of thread that pull that pulls everything together. That's, that's really beautiful to see. Um, So thank you for being a part of it. And thank you for talking to Jen and I about um, fragmentation and, colonialism and tourism and cannibalism and art and <laughs> academia. This has been such a treat. Thank you. Thank You're very you, welcome. Barbara. It was really awesome to meet you. I'm a big fan. I'm going to be uh, scouring the net for whatever you're out here doing. Let's be friends. Let's I would talk like birds. you very much. Yeah, things I'd love to talk to you about so we can make that happen. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And Ginny, excellent job. This is really cool. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you again. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. The Art History Bay. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code, program.